take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, we will not uh, be in this passage the whole time this evening. We will go to a different passage of Scripture uh, this evening and looking at some different things. But uh, we are going through a series that is uh, simply described this way, the glory of God in everyday life. There are many of us that uh, when it comes to knowing God, we would be delighted in the fact if he would open up the sky or give us some sort of vision of something. And uh, as you go through and you look at uh, the scripture, more often than not, that's not how God works. Uh, He doesn't work in that way. He works by using his own words to describe himself. Exodus 34 was this passage that we looked at uh, in one of the initial sermons in the series where, well, Moses is the leader of a group of people who rebelled against God. They had done pretty much the worst thing they could have done, and that was to make another God and worship it. And God was going to judge the nation of Israel, but Moses, uh, in his pleading and reminding God of his promises, God relented from human perspective of what he was going to do to the nation. But Moses was rather frustrated to have to lead people like this. I mean, he has to lead two million people and have them go through the wilderness, and they uh, have already shown themselves on several times to be stubborn, to do their own thing. And, And so he is really frustrated and he just simply says to god show me your glory i i need some encouragement that you're going to go with us and that you are who you say you are show me your glory and god says i'm not going to show you my glory what i'm going to do is that i'm going to appear but i'm going to put you in the cleft of the rock and i will go by and you can see the after parts or the the after effects of me going by But when God goes by, he actually declares a statement about himself, what he is like. He gives Moses what his glory is, what he delights in, how he shows himself in everyday life. And it's a statement that we've been working on, memorizing uh, here week after week uh, as far as for a congregation, because this is what we work off of, because this passage of Scripture is seen throughout the Old Testament in multiple different passages. Uh, Some of them complete or paraphrases or sometimes just a small phrase used from this, but it seems like this was a kind of doctrinal statement or a creed statement that the nation of Israel and many in it had had memorized. And so it would be good for us uh, here uh, to go through this and quote this, and uh, if you can, and we will then uh, go and look at what we're going to look at this evening, how God displays himself uh, in these ways. So we'll start in the middle of verse 6, and uh, let's uh, go through this uh, all the way through verse 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children, unto the third and fourth generation we looked last week that you have the question that comes out of psalm 145 is god one who will show this type of thing to everyone is this for all people because the nation of israel sometimes thought god was only good to them and was only kind to them and then they thought the other side well god only judges 
other nations. You know, we're, we get the good part and everyone else gets the bad part. And we looked last week at the story of Jonah where Jonah has the opportunity to preach a, a message of repentance to the nation of Nineveh and they listen. And instead of being judged uh, and destroyed, God actually relents, or the word is really, really this, Nahum. He Nahums. He, he relents from what he was going to do. Of course, Jonah's unhappy, and he actually voices why he's unhappy, and he says, this is why I'm unhappy. And he quotes this passage of Scripture. He said, I know you're a God like this. And I'm unhappy with that because I was hoping you'd destroy the Ninevites. And so you have there where you get to the end where God just settles Jonah and simply says to him, did I not show you mercy? Think about this. He was cast into the ocean, a whale that was prepared by God, a great fish that was prepared by God, uh, saved Jonah from drowning. Part of God's plan. And Jonah in the belly of the whale prays to God and he calls him the God of salvation. And what does God do? God uh, rescues him and brings him to the shoreline there and he is able to preach the message. He had rescued, saved Jonah. And why wouldn't God, if he saved Jonah, why would he not save a whole city filled with 120,000 people that don't know their right hand from their left hand? That's how the whole passage ends. Why would God not have mercy and compassion on people like that who don't even have a chance to understand right and wrong? Why would God judge in that type of a situation? We looked then at a book written 100 years later that Nahum wrote. That word coming up again, Nahum, relenting or comfort. And here this passage is not one of comfort for the city of Nineveh. It's God saying, okay, I gave you a hundred years and you haven't changed. And so the relenting that I have for the nation of Israel, Jerusalem has its own Nahum. You know, Nahum, the individual uh, there in Jerusalem. But you read in Nahum 3 and verse 7, it says that Nineveh has no Nahums, no comforters. And God at that point finally said, okay, I was compassionate to you, I showed mercy to you, but you continued to do what you wanted to do, and thus I had that other part where I'm visiting judgment and iniquity. And so God did this. And so you see, even in the life of Nineveh, God's a compassionate God. He shows mercy. He is sending mercy to people that don't deserve it. But there are occasions where God just says, enough is enough. And my goal this, this, this week was to go to Joel 2 and talk through another passage of Scripture where this comes up. But I really want to talk about a theme here this evening that does play on this idea, is God really compassionate even in the worst of circumstances? I mean, can you think of really bad circumstances? I mean, I think of people that are in countries that are torn by war and the things unspeakable that they go through and they see uh, is god there or is god there when family seems to crumble around you or health just disappears or these type of things where there seems to be no let up of bad things from a human perspective See, when you look at the Scripture, you find that 
what we have going on in humanity right now where people go through great difficulties and great trials and they're extended and lengthy uh, that this has been a part of human life the human experience and the last year and a half I've, i've been going through just different material that is just simply talking about people going through suffering difficulty and tonight i I'm, i'm going to give you some of the things that i've just come to conclusions and grip with my own soul as far as understanding how to respond to these type of things how does the scripture how do people in the scripture respond And I think a good way for us to to consider this is just, I want us to start off by turning to Psalm 13, but there's going to be a passage that we're going to spend much time in, but I want us to at least get to Psalm 13. If you look at the Psalms and you understand what's going on in the Psalms and you read through them, one in every three Psalms is called a lament psalm. It may not have that in the title, but you look at it, and as people categorize it, they go, it's a lament. Now, for us, when we hear that term lament, it just means uncontrolled crying. And as you look at the scriptural side of things, there are people that are going to cry loudly, greatly, for lengths of time. But when you talk about a lament psalm, that's not exactly what's being addressed. Okay, it's just, when you have a lament psalm, it's just filled uh, from front to back uh, with just a person crying. No, there's crying in the psalm, but that's not the only thing that's there. A lament could be defined as a loud cry, a howl, a passionate expression of grief. However, as you look at the Bible and you look at laments, people crying over difficult and bad circumstances. When you look at this, a lament is more than a sorrow or just talking about being sad. It's more than walking through the stages of grief. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Prayer in pain that leads to trust. And as you look at lament psalms, typically what you're going to find is this. If you read through them, so one in every three psalms is going to pretty much be like this. You're going to find a difficult situation, but in that difficult situation, four things happen with the psalmist. One is this, that they turn to God. I mean, the Psalms, as you you read them, they address God. They're at least turning to God in their grief. They're not just wallowing in their sorrows and not communicating anything or, or, or being with anybody or doing anything like that. No, what you find is that at least the Lament Psalms are indicating this person's talking to God. They've turned to God. The second thing that you find is that the person in those Psalms typically complains Now, it's unlike complaining and murmuring and grumbling that we oftentimes do. 
Because more than likely, when you talk about complaining, it's usually that we're talking to our friends about something bad that's happened, and we just tell them all the gory details of it and all the, the, the ends and outs of it, and that's all we do is that we complain. No, in this case, the person is complaining to the one who can actually do something about it. Sort of like this. Uh, people oftentimes complain about products that they've bought. And they complain about it, and they go, this is a horrible product, and it did this and this, and then it doesn't do this. And you go, have you sent a complaint to the company? Have you sent a complaint to the complaint department? Many times what happens is this, is that they don't know that their product is having problems unless someone what? Tells them. Now, God's not up in heaven going, oh, I wonder what's going on. Oh, I didn't know this was happening. But what is the response of an individual that is in pain and agony is to say, God, this is what's going on. Okay, this doesn't seem to be going right, and this doesn't seem to be going right. And there is with the complaint, oftentimes as you look at these laments, it's in the form of a question. Okay, Let, let's just look at Psalm 13 and see how this psalm starts, because he's obviously addressing God here. So he's, he's made the turn, but here's, here's the complaint. How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? forever how long wilt thou hide thy face from me how long shall i take counsel in my soul having sorrow in my heart daily how long shall my enemy be exalted over me okay you, you read that and you go that's pretty much everything you know, people, I'm having trouble with people, I'm having trouble with health, my own circumstances, I feel alone, I feel in the depths of despair. I mean, that, that's typically what you have going on in a lament psalm, but when you have these laments throughout the scripture, it's this person turning to God, they're voicing their complaint. But the third thing that you always find in these laments as you go through a lament psalm is that you will find this, that they will oftentimes ask. They will ask for something. Okay? They'll not only go just go to God and say, this is going on. What you will find in these psalms is that they will ask for something from God. They'll ask for relief or whatever it may be. You say, how does that work out in this psalm? Okay? Look at verse number three. Okay? Here's, here's the asking part. Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. And then this, lighten mine eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I have prevailed against him, and those that trouble me rejoice that I move. And so he just simply says, Lord, hear me. You know, focus on my situation, as if God's not, because he is, but the plea here is from this individual, it's not so much that you pay attention, could you give me some sign that you are? consider and show me what's going on here and then you know the, the the statement here lighten mine eyes you know give me an encouragement when a person is downcast we talk about you know their eyes they're sad they're drooping and that type of thing uh and there's no we oftentimes say this there's no light and there's no life the psalmist here is going would you lighten mine eyes give me an encouragement 
Give me strengthening. And so you have in this lament a turning to God, a complaining, then asking for something. And in the end, what you find with most lament psalms is this, is some statement of trust or confidence in God. That I am going to trust God. Look at how this psalm ends. Uh, Verse number five, but I have trusted in thy mercy. You go, what? The mercy, your long-suffering loyalty to me. I've seen it time and time again. My heart shall rejoice in thy salvation. You know what buoys the heart, what strengthens and lifts up the heart of a Christian in any circumstance? And if there's nothing that you can rejoice in, you can at least say this, I'm saved. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, no matter what happens in this life, I have the hope of eternity with God forever in heaven. So there still is the sorrow to be endured in this life, but the statement of trust is this, I have salvation. And so there is, uh, at the end of this psalm, this statement, thy salvation. Now the psalmist goes even further and says this, I will sing unto the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And it's in the midst of the circumstances that don't look very good. And there are occasions where you have people that are going through great difficulty that are encouragement to people around them. They're trusting in God and they're saying, this is what's going on and he has dealt bountifully above and beyond all that I could ever ask and think and I'm seeing it in these circumstances where he is doing certain things. And so as you go through a lament psalm, you typically have a turning, a complaining, an asking, and a trusting more often than not as you look at the the complaining section you typically find questions like where are you god and if you love me why is this happening to me i mean that's typically what you find but what you find is that oftentimes our suffering i mean it's not something we want to go through it's not something that we go and look for but one christian author made this statement god whispers to us in our pleasures he speaks in our conscience but he shouts in our pain it is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world Now, sometimes the only thing, now it's not to always say that this is the case, but sometimes the only thing that will actually move us to consider God are difficult times. And so God does this repeatedly throughout our lives where we go through difficult times where our way is clouded and things are not right. And you go, why is God doing this? And it's for us oftentimes just to hear God, to understand him better. He knows he's got our attention. Now, I I want us to go to the greatest of laments in our scripture anybody know where that's at it's got the name in it the book of lamentations 
say, where's that at? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Lamentations is, to me, one of the more incredible books of Scripture. It's not one that people turn to. You know, I'm going to wake up and have a fresh start to my day, and I'm going to read, uh, you know, the first chapter of Lamentations. That's typically not what happens. But it's an incredible book for multiple different reasons. This book, it's an emotional book. You say, when was it written? It was written in about 586 B.C. And you go, well, why is that important in history? Well, the city of Jerusalem has just been wiped out. Jeremiah had ministered to this city for years preaching to kings, knowing the princes, seeing the people in the street, knowing the servants. He's preached to these people. But for three years, they were in a siege uh, under the Babylonians, and uh, the things that that city went through just in the siege were horrifying. But when finally the walls were broken down and the Babylonians came in and started hauling people off, the starvation and famine that had already taken place and, and even some of the loss already was just even horribly magnified and uh, greatly magnified in the fact that hundreds were killed, many carried away into slavery, the cruelties of war upon this, and the city knocked down. In some cases, brick by brick it was knocked down, stone by stone, tilted over. Jeremiah had ministered to all of these people and called out to them. He was the weeping prophet. And that's before this all happens. He's a prophet that's moved with what he sees is perhaps going to happen to these people and what is actually going on in their lives. He's moved by it. And when you read this Lamentations, it's a lament but it is one of the most organized books in our Bible. Okay? More often than not, when people are suffering, they don't, they, I don't want to say they don't speak coherently, they really don't have organized thoughts. It's emotions. And what you find bubbling up is what is the thing that is thought about at that instant and whatever. And it's not all that organized. But when you read Lamentations, it's the exact opposite of that in organization. Because you go through and you count the verses of each chapter. Chapter 1, you have how many verses? Not a trick question. 22. Okay, you look at chapter 2. How many verses? 22. Chapter 3. Okay, this is the trick question part. How many are there? 66. You go to chapter 4, what do you find? There is 22. You go to chapter 5, how many are there? 22 you figure this out 22 22 the middle one you go three times 22 
66, 22, 22. You go, well, why is that the case? Well, each one of those verses is an acrostic. Each verse starts with a different succeeding letter of the alphabet. This is something for the and you say, why did they do this in Hebrew uh, poetry? It's because they wanted you to be able to memorize this and remember this. I mean, Jeremiah's not just merely writing this and he's mumbling things out and, and coming up with this. No, this is stuff that he wants people to remember. And we'll get to this in a second, that the focus is right in the center of the book. What he wants you to get in the midst of lament is the statements that you find right in the center of chapter 3. And it may not be the statement that you think. Now, as you go through this uh, Lamentations where Jeremiah has seen all of this destruction, friends, family members, uh, people is known, places that he's been, leveled, destroyed, taken away he laments and you see how chapter one starts it says this how doth the city sit sit solitary and you look at chapter two here's this question how and chapter four you see it starting this way how how did we get here how did this happen how could this possibly be how did i mean that that is the name when you look at the hebrew bible of the book it's not lamentations it's how how could this be? How did we get here? How could, and really ultimately this, how could God allow this to happen? I mean, that's really the question. And so you see, right from the, the center or the starting point of this book, you see that it's just simply, how did we get here? And as you go through, you, you read in chapters 1 and 2, it just simply reflects on the fact that God brought this destruction upon these people, upon this city, not that everyone was a great sinner, but it was due as a collective judgment against people who had decided to turn from God. I mean, you think about one of the kings that actually was uh, one that Je excuse me, Jeremiah went into the presence of. He actually had the Word of God sent to him, directly written copies, and read to him. And as that king reads that message and hears it, when it gets done, he takes his knife out and cuts it and throws it in the fire to heat his winter fireplace doesn't care what god has to say and there's people that as you read what uh, they're doing they're worshiping idols in the temple of god they're uh, weeping over uh, certain gods in their private homes and they're doing this and so you have a nation and a people that are ones who are not paying attention to god and have ignored him even though they would up front say we're god's people but besides all of that, and we're, we're not going to deal with that element here, it's that when you read through this and you read verse after verse after verse in 1 and 2 of Lamentations, you just kind of go, I can't imagine being there and going through all of that. Sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. 
And you might go, okay, well, this book is just one big cry, though at certain times as you read through, you find little hints about God. You look at verse 18 of chapter 1, there's this little statement made about God, that the Lord is righteous. And he makes this statement, Jeremiah says this, for I have rebelled against his commandments. Here I pray you, all my people and my sorrow. He, he does make, you know, just kind of this bubbling up that, you know, the Lord is still right. He's still just. He's still fair. Okay, he makes that statement about God. And you go through chapter 2, just simply statements of how in the world did they get there and the people of God going and doing their own thing and arousing the anger of God. But then you get to chapter 3, and chapter 3 is this chapter where every three verses, the first verse in the cycle starts with a letter of the alphabet. There's only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, that's why there's 22. But you find this just sets of three as you go through that would have been memorized as you go through, and you start off that verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1, I am the man that hath seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. That's where he's at. At times we get to that in our life, where we feel like there is no light anywhere. And we trust God and we go, well, we know that he's brought us to this point, but it's nothing but darkness. So when you think about this being a lament, you're going, when does the turn happen? When does that happen and when does the trust happen? And it's highlighted right in the center of the book. The tone changes. As you look In verse number 18, it says this, I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. I'm, I'm eating things that are bitter to mouth. It's like I've you know, just sucked on a lemon and I'm sour of face. My soul hath them still in remembrance, and it humbled, uh, is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope and here you have this first set of 22 verses and it ends that i have a hope i have a confidence it the last word there and you're kind of going okay so what is it for a person who's walking through darkness what's the hope that this person has verse 22 it's of the lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. You say, well, where would he get that kind of idea from? As he looks around at the rubble, the smoke is just, you know, kind of just still coming up from there, uh, the bodies uh, perhaps still being buried. And he's seeing all of this and he makes a statement like that you think about this it's of the lord's mercies it's that word has said that as you think about god he's abundant in this 
And as you think about this, that when it says the Lord merciful and gracious, the understanding of that word gracious is that he's compassionate, that he's moved like a mother towards her children. See, Jeremiah is suddenly going, I know this about my God and I see all of this going on around me, but I know this about God. He is one that has been ever loyal to me, has always loved me, has always had his affection set upon me and his people, and he's done this throughout history, and he's done that for me in my own personal life. He's that kind of God, and that he is a God who's declared himself to be moved by my difficulties. My, uh, my difficulties move his compassion And, and you think of a hymn that we sing oftentimes. We have to be individuals at times in difficult circumstances day by day reviewing this. You see how the next verse describes this? They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. It's not that okay, God shows me something, and oh, this is new, you know, this is something new in the character of God. No, it's every day I'm experiencing the compassion and the graciousness and the loving kindness of God, and every day that I get up, I'm experiencing it anew. There's something else God is doing in my life, that he's showing his graciousness, his faithfulness. We sometimes go, God left me. And the statement is not that God left me. It's oftentimes we, what? We left God. We left him behind. God's always faithful. You find that uh, echoed throughout the scripture. He's always faithful. And the psalmist just simply says, here, let me give you some other things that I understand. The Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance. He's the only thing I truly have. You think about this, for a saved person, what do you have in this life? And the answer is, well, what Job had when he was going through great circumstances, difficulties. Naked came I into the world, naked shall I return. The understanding he didn't bring anything to the world, not taking anything out. You go, so what do I actually have? Well, he says this, the Lord's my inheritance. For me, I'm one who's trusted in God. And the thing I have is God for eternity. He's promised that. And you can find this throughout the Psalms and throughout uh, different portions of the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, places like Romans chapter 8, that God is our inheritance. So what then do I do? Therefore, I will... Here's that word again. I will hope in Him. I have confidence I know what he's like. I know what his character's like. And then verse 25, the Lord is good unto them that wait for him to the soul that seeketh for him. Kind of echoes of Romans 8 as you see this statement. All things work together for good to them that, that love God. Okay, for those that are connected to god because they have a love for him they have a trust in him there is this understanding that even though i may be going through the worst of circumstances god will ultimately work out good 
And it may not, and understand this, it may not be in this life. It definitely will be in the life to come. I mean, sometimes we think about Job and you go through his situation and you get to the end of the story and Job has everything restored. You kind of go, well, that's what's going to happen in life to me. You know, finally I go through the circumstances and God's going to make everything, well, even better than they were before. It's not always the case. It's not always the case. So here's a person who is simply saying this, the Lord's good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is, verse 26, good that a man that uh, should have both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. He sitteth alone, keepeth silence, because he hath borne it upon him. He putteth his mouth in the dust. If so be, there may be hope. Now for us, we kind of go, well, that's the core of the book of Lamentations. Right there. Great is, our, great is his faithfulness to us. His mercies are new every morning. But understand, that's not the center of what Jeremiah was saying in Lamentations. Because if you kind of go, what, what would be the center verse of this whole book? Because you've got 22, 22... 66 22 and 22 what would be the center portion of the book either verse 32 or verse 33 or 34 one of those but 33 would be the most central one and i want you to just look at this okay verse 31 says this the lord will not cast off what he won't cast off forever and then, verse 32, but though he caused grief, yet he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. He's going to be moved towards you, and he's going to show his loving kindness to you. But then, verse 33, for he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Do you understand this thought? That God's not up in heaven delighting in crushing individuals in fact what it's really indicating there is that he's not delighting in that it's something that he does he has to judge on certain times but he would much rather be doing what displaying mercy displaying his compassion I mean, he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. God's not up there going, I love making people's life miserable. No, what we have stated as far as time and time again in our quoting of Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, is that we have a God in heaven who is merciful and gracious. He's abundant in goodness and truth. He is keeping the mercy for thousands time and time again he's doing this and that is what his character is like now if you want to go your own way okay he will afflict he will judge sin but god in heaven does not delight in bringing difficulty into people's life he is not as you would characterize many of the roman and greek gods that they delight in pettiness 
that they're like us as human beings. No, God is one that in the midst of our storm is not saying, I am looking to crush you. No, his delight is this, what you find there beforehand, the Lord will not cast off forever. It may feel like the Lord is putting a distance between you and him. That circumstances make him feel distant. But God, as Jeremiah is stating, he's not going to cast off forever. He declares this in his word. He declares this throughout the scripture that he delights in his people. Now we'll say this as you go beyond verse 33 and you kind of continue to go through. Circumstances don't change. Okay, I mean, you read the rest of the Lamentations, it's not, oh, I've, I've got this understanding that God's mercies never fail. His compassions, they fail not. Everything's great now. And you read in chapters 4 and 5 how the Jerusalem is full of life and people are living there and everything's... No. It's still the same circumstances. But you know what? Jeremiah has the ability to handle them. And it's not because Jeremiah is some sort of person who's got great moral fiber in himself or that he is one who's just uh, a stoic and can handle things like this. No, he's come to the conclusion, I've got a God in heaven who is moved with compassion towards my circumstances that is faithful to me, that he delights in showing me mercy. He's made promises to me that if I am one who has trust in him, he is my salvation, he is my portion forever, that no matter what I may go through in this life, in the end, God will be able to fully display his compassion and his mercy and his faithfulness to me. And I will see these things. God has stated them. It's true, even though I may not feel that way. My emotions are running wild and the circumstances may be completely different. God doesn't change. That's why it's good for us to have a passage like what we've been memorizing in our heads so that when the water is about to drown us, in the midst of this, we can still say, here is what my God is like. And he's been this way generation from generation to generation to another generation. He doesn't change. His character doesn't change. This is who he is. He's a God that even when I feel like I'm being crushed, ground up, smashed that this is what he's like and my goal ought to be that yes every morning that i get up i am attempting to go god can i see your faithfulness to me can i see the mercy and your compassion can i see displays of that because i know this is what you're like lord show them to me day in and day out may i see these things 
And then one time what will happen is this, is that God in his graciousness will remove us from this life. And we'll never again have to question whether God is a good God because all sorrow, tears, death, and dying are removed. And we'll be able to see a full display of the compassion, the mercy, the love, the grace of God. But right now, like you have in laments, you invoice your complaints to God and ask Him questions, but always cling to who He is. There is, as it says in the middle of this passage, hope, confidence, strength, not because of who you are, but because of what God is like. Let's pray. Lord, we will all face times like Jeremiah did and the psalmist did. We will. Lord, help our faith. Like the disciples at times uh, would cry out, Lord, help thou my unbelief. There are occasions where we are going to go through and our vision of you is going to be clouded. Satan's going to speak in our ears and suggest all sorts of things about who you are. Circumstances are going to cry what seems to be opposite of what we know of you. People around us may counsel us uh, to ignore certain things about you. But Lord, help our faith to cling to what we know about you. You delight in hearing from us. You delight in hearing our cries, our sorrow, and that we bring them to you. But may we also, in the midst of that, bring our requests because we know who you are. And when we're done making those requests, still cling to you. That we would keep trusting in the one who keeps us trusting. So Lord, we thank you. We're reminded that we're not the first people in this world to go through difficult times, nor will we be the last. But may we be a testimony, magnifying who you are, lifting up who you are, magnifying who you are in the midst of our trouble and our difficulty. May people see you. And so may we be individuals that give you praise, give you honor, and by our lives are able to display your glory when you are able to display your compassion and your grace and your mercy and your help. So Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word. May we understand this. Before emotions and circumstances hit, may we uh, understand how to respond so that when, not if, when things like this happen, we will cling to you.
Thank you for your son that makes our portion possible, that makes it possible for us to come into your presence. And in his name we pray. Amen.